everybody. Happy five o'clock on a Saturday at Fellowship Mosaic. We're glad you're here. Will you stand with us and sing?
Welcome, Mosaic. So glad to see you tonight. What a joy it is to praise our God together, isn't it? Oh, man, it's nice to be in the cool air conditioning, right? Nice, very nice. I'm Laura. I am blessed to get to serve with the worship team here at Fellowship Mosaic, and I'm really, really glad that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. If you're here for the first time, we've got some ways on the screen for you to find out more about Fellowship Mosaic and how to get connected here. And ladies, it's that time of year that we are about to launch our fall Bible studies. So you can go online or out in the foyer today and find out what Bible studies we're gonna be doing, what classes we're gonna be doing this fall. I encourage you to check it out and get registered for those. Okay, we're gonna take just a minute and we're gonna watch a short video about a team that I'm very excited about because my son has been involved in it when he was in high school. And I'm guessing maybe some of you have never heard of it. Have you heard of the Fellowship Story Team? Anybody? Guys, I'm so excited. Take a look at this video. I think the best way to capture a story is to know the story you're sharing and to know the story to tell. When I think of story, I think of a person's journey. So I think to understand that and to recognize that, to know the best way to show it to the outside world, to put in somebody's life into a viewable term. A good story can make you feel a certain way or inform you about something. It, it seeks to deliver a reason, a meaning, a message. A story is something that you can relate to. It has dynamic and it has change. It can start off one way and change a different way. And that's the value of getting to watch someone as they go, go through their story. The Fellowship Story Team is super helpful. They're, they're fun to get to know and the experiences and stuff you'll pick up on will last throughout your time. I think someone should join if they have a passion like me for whether it be photography or graphic design or video. It's also a good idea to join just to meet new people and uh, make new friends. What makes the Story Team experience unique is the fact that you are getting to serve in a way that allows you to grow a skill while also allowing you to grow in a community of people who are in the same work as you. I think it's a really cool place to serve because not only are you growing in a technical skill that you can serve with your church, but you can also serve your community with or grow professionally in. I've always wanted to pursue like a video career. I think that sharing stories like what we're doing here is very powerful and I learned that we could do that through a God-honoring way with our church and I was like that sounds awesome so I got the opportunity to hang out with Kyle and Will for a bit one day on a one shoot and I just really liked it it was a good time. Usually at the uh, Fellowship Store we have a certain thing that we do whether it be like taking pictures, storyboarding, taking a video, editing, graphic design, just Week by week, we have a certain theme that we participate and undertake. The story team has been a very important opportunity for our son, Rhett. So he's always had a passion for this, and I think this allows Rhett to take his passion and help fellowship, um, tell the story to different parts of the church ministry, and now get an exposure to different uh, techniques and things like that that can spread his influence across uh, fellowship. I would recommend this team to somebody because it's a place where you can learn a skill but also have a community of people around you 
Um, especially if you have any interest in it at all, to just come through the door one day and just see what it's like, get yourself involved, see if this is something that you're interested in. Something I really love is the mission and vision of the Fellowship Student Story Team Ministry is its idea to want to continue to produce and release leaders. Producing in the sense of training, equipping, you don't have to know anything before you walk through the door. Um, and just equipping you and training you in the way that you can learn so that you can pour into others who are younger than you or who may not know as much and be able to take what you learn and also pour it into others while also being poured into to growing and creating this cycle of produce and release wherever you are. The story team. Pretty exciting. Um, fun fact, this video that you just watched from beginning to end, from the planning stages all the way to this final cut was done by students on the story team. So if you have a sixth grader through 12th grader that might be interested in photography or um, video shooting and editing or graphic design, any of those things, this would be a great place for them to plug in. Great place to learn new skills and um, be a part of a community of other students that have similar interests and to serve their church by capturing life change stories here at Fellowship. We, speaking of life change stories, I would like to share with you that in second service, our 6.30 service, we have two young ladies who are going to be baptized tonight. Yeah, Miss Emily and Amanda are gonna be baptized and we want you to be aware so you can be praying for them and celebrating with them in this special time. Would you please pray with me as we continue in worship? Lord God, thank you for this Mosaic family. Thank you for this place to come and be together and praise you and worship you. God, would you focus our hearts and our minds on you tonight? Help us to breathe deep and just come before you ready for whatever you have for us tonight. Would you transform our minds with your word, Lord? We love you. We praise you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And continuing in a heart of worship through our expression of gratitude, will you stand with us and will you read our offering prayer together? O oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your son and your spirit, amen. We have a new song that we're gonna sing together tonight, Behold Him. Maybe it's like already a part of your playlist or your rhythms of worship in your own time. Uh, but we're gonna sing that song tonight for the first time. So we're just gonna sing the chorus once together first so you can get a little bit of a feel of what this song sounds like. And then we'll go into the song and sing it together in worship. The chorus of Behold Him. Son of God, Jesus, Son of God, Be 
Walked across the pages of time He who made every living thing Behold Him He who heard humanity's cry Left His throne to wake as a child He became like the least of
we sit still in front of you, God, beholding your glory, beholding who you are, who you've always been and who you forever promised to be. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for giving us hope, Lord. We need you and we love you, God. the grave. 
reading of the word of the Lord. Hey everybody, I'm uh, Matt Frittle. I'm married to Amy and we are the uh, <laughs> we are the parents of Carlos, Carrington and Faith. Um, I serve on gatekeepers here at Mosaic, uh, and Amy and I are also a part of the community group that's led uh, by the Blanchards and the Crumbs. Now let's hear from the word of the Lord. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the people said, this is the word, this is of, the the word Lord. of the Lord. Well, hey, my name is Nick, and uh, it is a joy to, to be a part of this body. And I know that you see a lot of different faces up here. And so I just want to reintroduce myself every time. It feels like I've said this before. Yes, I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it. My name is Nick, and part of the way we do things around here, because we really value team, and we value producing and releasing, is we like to have a lot of people involved. And so part of my role is, is helping to lead a teaching team. And so the way that works is we get together about every two months, and we look at the passages that are coming up, and we spend time studying together, praying together, looking at resources and theology, and trying to see where the Lord's going to lead us together. And so that's the reason, if you notice faces are changing up here a lot, that's part of what we're seeking to do together, is to have different people, different voices, and what's going on. So it is, a, it is a joy to be with you tonight and to dive into the Word. We've been in this 21-week series looking at the person of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And it, it came in three groups of seven. First, we looked at seven I am statements where Jesus describes who he is. And then we looked at seven miracles where Jesus showed us who he is by what he did. And then in this last seven, there's a little bit of a shift in perspective you see, these last seven are seven encounters that people had with Jesus. And our focus in this last seven is a little bit different. In, in the first two groups, it was all about who is Jesus and who has he shown himself to be. In this last seven, we're looking at how people responded to Jesus. If the first 14 weeks are true, that we, we discover who Jesus is, how then should we respond to him? 
And so we're turning to look at how Jesus had these interactions with people and, and how the revelation of Jesus as Messiah affected who they are and how they walk with him. And so that's gonna be our focus tonight. And tonight we come to a really interesting conversation between Jesus and a man named Pilate. Now, Pilate was a politician. He was a leader in ancient Rome, a pragmatist, somebody climbing the ladder of world government. And he was overseeing the region of Judea that Jesus was in at the time of his crucifixion. So tonight we are gonna look at what happens when the preaching and gospel of Jesus meets politics which means this is the last sermon I will preach at fellowship. <laughs> so the subtitle is the fast track to the unemployment line. Here we go. Let's dive in. Uh, John chapter 18 is where we're going to be as we take a look at the conversation between Jesus and this political superpower. So we're going to begin in John chapter 18, verse 28. Here we go. So it says, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So what's going on at this point in the story is they've had the all night trial. This is the, the, the morning that Jesus is gonna be crucified. And so they gathered the Jewish leaders together and they had the evening where they were accusing Jesus of crimes and there were all kinds of witness testimony that didn't line up. It was clear they were lying about him. It was clear the things weren't going, but the verdict was decided before the trial began. He was guilty. They just need to find an excuse to give him that label. But there's a problem. They want him executed and they didn't have the power to do that. You need to know a little bit about how the Roman empire worked to make sense of this. Every empire back in that day existed to make the capital city rich. So the way you would do that is you would conquer other cities and then you would just tax the fire out of them. And so you would take from them, from taxes and, and different polls that you would do to make your, your citizens richer of the main capital. But there's a problem. People don't like to be taxed like that by, from, from somebody far away. And so there's always a threat of rebellion. So how do you keep rebellion from happening? You use a military to keep people under your thumb, right? But the Roman military is not big enough to police the entire empire. So what you do is, is you keep a small group of, group of troops in each little area, and then you have a governor whose job is to basically try to keep the people as happy as possible so they keep working and they keep paying their taxes. And if anything starts to get a little out of hand, he lets the superiors know and they can send the troops in. And so that's the reason, even though you have their own Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, they are supposed to manage the day-to-day. -day. That's one of the things that Rome perfected is they didn't need the Roman government to manage cities. They let the locals manage their own cities. They let them take care of themselves as long as they kept paying their taxes. And so this whole time in the life of Jesus, all these controversies, all these accusations are only taking place among the Jewish leaders. But when they get ready for a death sentence, that was the one thing they didn't have the authority to do. If they start carrying out death sentences, suddenly that starts to look like the kind of rioting that Rome is not okay with. So these Jewish rulers know that they need, once they've decided Jesus has to die, they need to go to Pilate, who is the appointed Roman governor of the area, and get his permission to crucify Jesus. Not just his permission, they need him to actually execute the sentence. 
So they come to Pilate, and what he normally Pilate stayed in this really lush, beautiful palace over on the Mediterranean Sea, and he would only come to Jerusalem at festival time. And it's the Passover festival. Passover was when Israel remembered their exodus out of Egypt. This was their 4th of July. Okay, this was the founding of their nation. They were slaves under Egypt, and God rescued them and made them into a nation. So they would celebrate the founding of their nation and God delivering them and bringing them into their own people. So think about it. If the narrative was we were under the foreign oppressor Egypt and God delivered us out by his mighty hand, what is the most threatening day of the year for Rome to see a rebellion happen in Israel? It's Passover. That's when the people would be remembering, oh, God delivers us from oppressors. That's what he does. So Pilate would come to Jerusalem for that week and personally oversee Passover and make sure everybody's behaving. He'd stay out of the way of all the religious stuff as long as it never got political. And so that's why Pilate is here at this time as he is trying to keep things calm, let them have their little Passover, let them kill their lambs, that's all fine, as long as they don't get any funny ideas about rebelling against Rome. So that's the context of what's happening. And they come to Pilate, but there's a problem. During the middle of this feast, the people have to stay ritually pure, which means they have to stay away from all of these things the Old Testament said don't do. Don't eat this, don't touch this. And all of these rules, the Romans didn't care about at all. So if you walk into a Roman house, you're almost guaranteed to come into, something, come into contact with something that would make you impure. They're in the middle of the holiest feast of the year. And if they come in contact with it, they don't get to celebrate Passover. They have to go outside the city and wait till it's over. So they come to Pilate and they can't enter his house because they'll become unpure and have to miss out on Passover. So Pilate comes out to the porch to meet them in the courtyard to have the conversation. Now, catch the irony of this moment. They are avoiding the impurity of entering a Gentile's home while they are plotting the murder of Jesus. And you see where their priorities and focus are in this moment? So Pilate comes out to meet them and hear their case. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Now notice how they dodged the question in verse 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. That's not an answer. They completely avoid even answering the question. They just, just trust us. Now, Pilate is not a friend of the Jews. In fact, he treated them really harshly. And so you, you might be inclined, and some people have been inclined to go, why is he skeptical of killing Jesus? Wouldn't he just want to crucify anyone? The one thing Pilate would hate more than seeing a Jewish man go, go free is be, taking orders from Jewish leadership. So when they show up and say, you need to execute this man, just trust us. He goes, no, I'll decide for myself. Thank you very much. I want to talk to him. So Pilate wants to know. And he says, but Pilate said in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He says, this, this seems below me. I don't need to mess with this. But we have no right to execute anyone they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had said multiple times that he would be lifted up in front of everyone as he was killed. So in verse 33, Pilate decides to have a conversation with Jesus. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
It's at this point that we find out what formal charge the Jews are actually bringing against Jesus. You see, if the biggest threat to Rome is any kind of uprising, the worst thing anyone could do is declare themselves a new king. That was immediately a threat to Rome. And this is what they're charging Jesus with. They are saying that Jesus has claimed himself to be king. He's saying that he has the authority to rule. Therefore, he is going to start an uprising against Rome and you should kill him quick because he's a threat to you. So this is the question Pilate asks. He sits Jesus down and he says, is that true? Do you call yourself a king? Are you starting an uprising? And Jesus replies, verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? What I think Jesus is doing is he is, he is separating here. What's actually going on, Pilate? Do you really want to know who I am? Or are you just following up on a charge? Because the way Pilate answers that question is going to determine how Jesus answers his question. Pilate, even though Pilate is the, the uh, interrogator here, Jesus is very much in charge of this conversation. Pilate's response, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, meaning I don't really care who you are. I have no interest in any of your claim to be king of the Jews. That means nothing to me. And then he says, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? So remember what the charge is. The charge is that Jesus has named himself king and Pilate is trying to understand whatever it is that Jesus is up to. He's been going around for three years preaching about the kingdom of God. He's been proclaiming some gospel of good news. And Pilate wants to know, is what you're doing a threat to Rome? Are you starting a political uprising that we need to be concerned about? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. At this point, we, Jesus has been talking about this idea of the kingdom throughout his entire ministry. And the, the phrase kingdom, it means, we tend to think, because we have like a medieval lens of kingdoms, we tend to think primarily about a place. A kingdom is the geography where someone reigns. But the way the word was used at this time in the Greek language, kingdom primarily had to do with rule. It had to do with your will being done, that you're in charge. So Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, meaning what does it look like when God's in charge? And as he's been preaching, he's been saying the kingdom of God looks like this. Following the kingdom looks like this. This is how you obey God in the kingdom. And for the first time, the question is very directly put, how does this reign of God that Jesus is talking about interact with the reign of human government, the reign of the kingdoms of the world? And Jesus says, oh, nope, no, my kingdom's not one of those world kingdoms. It's not the same kind of thing. In fact, what I'm doing is operating on an entirely different plane from what you're doing, Pilot. It would be as if um, I, walked, I worked at Walmart home office and I left and said, I'm starting my own business. And somebody said, um, are you about to go up against the big giant? And I said, no, I'm, I'm starting a counseling center. Like those don't compete with each other at all. They're entirely different realms. They're entirely different businesses. There's, there's no competition here. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom doesn't work like yours. 
and I have no threat. And he gives evidence for how Pilate can tell that he's not starting an uprising. He said, none of my people fought when you arrested me. In fact, one of them did. Peter pulled out a sword and cut off a guard's ear. And what did Jesus do? He said, put that away, stop it. And then he reached up and he healed the ear of the man that Peter attacked. Jesus is saying, if if what I'm doing was a political threat, starting an uprising that would take down Rome, my people wouldn't be standing by while you're threatening to kill me. They wouldn't be sitting back watching this take place. So when I talk about myself as a king, Pilate, you need to understand that works entirely differently than the way you talk about kingdom. In fact, when you think about human government, the primary means that human government assert their will on the world is what? They have laws and they use force. True? Um, if, if I, I don't particularly have a, a for speeding. If I speed, it's just because I'm being absent-minded. But let's imagine that I just had a total need for speed and had to drive fast all the time. And most of the roads near my house are about 30 mile an hour roads. Let's imagine I just love jumping on, I'm going 60. Would the city of Rogers care about how my heart felt about going fast? They wouldn't give a rip. They don't really care about how much I enjoy speed. What do they care about? That I stop doing it. So if I'm driving 60 down Dixieland and a police officer sees me, what is he going to do to get me to stop speeding? Is he going to pray for me? Is he gonna invite me to a small group study? No, he is, if I'm going 60 down Dixieland, he is arresting me. He is physically taking my body and putting it in his car and then physically taking my car, my body to another place and they are imposing their will on me to obey the law. That's how human government works, right? Look at Romans chapter 13. Paul says as much. In Romans 13, Paul says, for the one in authority, this in context is talking about human government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath that bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. What Paul says to the believers is, he goes, hey, human government's in place for a good reason. And rebelling against them, that's, that's not our game. That's not what we do. And the way they deal with it is they punish you when you, when you do wrong. And so play nice, follow the rules. In fact, the only time Christians are blessed to disobey the government is if the government is commanding Christians to disobey God. We don't have a blank check to go, I think this law is stupid, therefore I won't follow it. I think I'm taxed too much, therefore I'm going to evade taxes, okay? We're told, obey the government, that's what they do. But when the New Testament talks about what we're doing in the church, it falls in a different category. I'm gonna ask you to stay with me for a while because we're gonna have to do some work to come to a place of understanding a theology of how all this lines up. The word kingdom only comes up twice in John's gospel. One is here in the conversation with Pilate, and the other is in John chapter three. 
And we need to take a look at John chapter three to understand how the rule of God comes on people as opposed to how the kingdoms of this world work. The kingdoms of this world, we have a law. If you break it, we physically punish you to make you comply. We don't really care about your character formation. We care that you obey. And that's fine. That's how human government works. But look at how the kingdom of God works. In John chapter three, we looked at this just a couple of weeks ago. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. See, human government works from the outside in. You have a law, and when people don't comply, you punish them until the punishment is severe enough that they go, I think I should stop breaking this law. This isn't going well for me. The kingdom of God works the other way. The kingdom of God gets inside you. It gives you new birth and new life. And the spirit of God begins to transform people. The way the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures describe this is it says the law of God will become written on your heart. What does it mean for the law to be written on your heart? The law is written on your heart when your motive for obeying is the same as the one who wrote the law. Okay, so if I'm speeding and my reason to not speed is so that I do not get a ticket, is the law written on my heart? No, they don't put speed limit signs up so that people don't get tickets. Why do they put speed limit signs up? So that people will be safe. Now in the road right next to my house, um, there's a little um, collection of duplexes that are kind of formed in a U with a parking lot in the middle. And regularly kids are out in that parking lot playing soccer. And without fail, at some point, that ball is gonna fly out into the road. And I'm terrified by the idea of a kid running out in front of me while I'm driving. And when I drive on that road, I drive slowly and carefully with my eyes up. Why? In that moment, my motive for driving safely is the same motive as the lawgiver's. And what Jesus says about the kingdom of God is the way the kingdom of God works is it transforms our hearts by the spirit of God at work in us so that our reason for living according to the law of God is because we have the same heart that God has. And so the kingdom of God, the rule of God is not primarily moved forward by creating laws with physical punishments that make you conform your behavior. That's one of the things that Jesus teaches on over and over again in his kingdom parables is he talks about the kingdom of God coming by, there's like a seed that gets planted inside you. And when it takes root, it starts to grow and transform and bear fruit. So Jesus is saying, Pilate, my kingdom is fundamentally different from yours. You don't have to be afraid that I'm gonna advance my kingdom by raising up an army and conquering Rome. That's not how I'm gonna do this. In fact, we see this phrase, not of this world, come up when Jesus is praying for his disciples in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying about those who would believe. And as he prays for them, he says, God, I don't ask you to take my people out of the world. I ask you to protect them from the evil one because my people are not of this world. Just like he is not of the world. What Jesus is doing is he is creating a new kind of citizenship. Paul's gonna call this a citizenship of heaven, which means that every Jesus follower is a dual citizen. We have a citizenship to the nation we live in 
and then we have a citizenship to the kingdom of heaven. And somehow those are working simultaneously at the same time. And the consistent message of the New Testament is they are not a threat to each other. They can exist parallel without being the same thing. But that's not gonna be true forever. In the prophet, I know we're doing a little tour of the Bible here. Hang with me. I think, I think there'll be a payoff for this little journey. In the book of Daniel, the Old Testament prophet talked about the kingdoms of the world. And he laid out this picture of all the kingdoms that would come. And then he described a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And this passage right here may be the most important one for understanding what Jesus talks about when he talks about the kingdom, of, the kingdom that he's preaching. In Daniel 2, 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Now, how does this work? Haven't I been saying the whole time, wasn't Jesus saying to Pilate, the kingdom I'm building is not a threat to your kingdom? Not immediately. Not immediately. Jesus isn't raising up an army. But ultimately what Jesus is doing will subvert every kingdom of man that's ever been. Take a look at how this story ends in the book of Revelation. This is the song of praise that will be sung. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. What did Jesus say his kingdom wasn't? It wasn't of this world. So somehow we get this story and this timeline that's playing out where Jesus launches a kind of kingdom that doesn't get enforced the way the kingdoms of the world are. That doesn't happen with armies and with swords and with laws and punishments. It actually gets inside people's heart and starts to transform them. That's what he says over and over in his preaching and his parables is this kingdom rule is going to transform people from the inside out. And Rome, you can rest easy. You're not in any danger today. But a day is coming, a future day when Jesus returns. And at that moment, what has been working spiritually in the hearts of the people of God will become a physical kingdom on earth when Jesus reigns and all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And this is the story that we're living in. This is the reason that Jesus could look at Pilate and say, there's, there's no threat here. Now, we have a very interesting situation in the time and place we live in because this was actually remarkably clear and easy when the people of God had no voice in their government. In the first century, the church didn't have to think about how you should run a human government because guess what? No one cared what the church said. They were still putting them in arenas and having lions eat them, okay? So there is no question in the New Testament about how should the church influence human government because they had no influence. We are now in a very interesting position that the New Testament did not anticipate where believers who have this dual citizenship, citizen of the kingdom of heaven that one day will come to earth and citizen of the place where we live where we have a vote in how these human governments should shape their laws. 
And that puts us in a really interesting position. And one of the moves we have to make that is really tricky is what we will find in scripture over and over again is biblical principles for how to live. We will find teaching about ethics for the people of God and how we should follow those ethics in our lives as the church and as citizens of the kingdom. What we don't find is a political policy to go implement in the United States of America. And I'll be honest with you, I am often just baffled at how we're supposed to make that trip. At how we are supposed to move from a very clear biblical ethic for how I as a Jesus follower should live and translate that into how a government that rules Christians and non-Christians should execute that. And this is, you've heard um, us say this before. Mickey said it just a couple of weeks ago. Our goal at fellowship is to be biblical, not political. And I think that statement can sometimes be confusing if you don't understand what he's saying. He is not saying that we will never say something that is politically offensive. What he's saying is we are gonna try to keep our preaching on the biblical principle and ethic of how we ought to live And we are going to leave it to the conscience of believers to translate that into how you should vote and what law should be. That we as a church are not going to prescribe a political policy. We are going to stay in the biblical principle category. Does that make sense? Which means we should be able to achieve remarkable unity within the body around our biblical principles and ethics. In fact, most of, as, as I've sat across from people in um, just this polarized time in fighting, most of the time when I go to the biblical ethic, we're all on the same page. Most of the time when I focus on that side of things, we're together within the church. And it's when we cross that bridge to political policy that people get really upset and get really divisive. Now, I'm not saying that political policy doesn't matter. I'm not saying that as an expression of your faith, you shouldn't be politically active. By all means, go for it. What I'm calling us to do is to have a lot of mercy and grace for each other as we cross that bridge. There was a study recently that said for the first time in American history, people are starting to select their church primarily based on if that church endorses the same political views they have. People are saying, I can no longer attend here, even though they preach the gospel of Jesus, even though they're calling us to walk in holiness and grow in our faith, I don't think they're aligned with me politically, therefore I need to go find a church that aligns with me politically. Another study was suggesting that in our day, we can no longer as Christians be united across the political divide that those days are done, we just need to accept that we are going to have churches split based on political affiliation. Maybe I'm stubborn and naive, I'm not ready to accept it. But how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna navigate the division that happens around political policy? Can I just give an example? Um, I was trying to think of like the least offensive, controversial example of this I possibly could. So here's the best I've come up with. I think we're all going to agree that drunkenness 
is pointed out of scripture as being sin and wrong and unhelpful. Even the non-religious world is gonna go, yeah, alcoholism is bad for you, it shouldn't happen. We're, we okay with that general principle? Okay, so what political policy should a government come up with to enforce that? Now, in America, we have a 21-year-old drinking limit, right? You can't buy or possess alcohol under 21 and you can't sell to a minor either. Now, can you imagine somebody making the case, hey, I've looked at some other countries that have a younger limit and they have less alcoholism. Maybe the 21-year-old policy isn't the best way to do it. Can we see that that would be a reasonable policy debate people could have? Is that law the most helpful law? Would it be appropriate if one person was convinced that 21 years was the right age to look at the person who disagrees with them and say, you don't care about drunkenness and you want all our kids to be alcoholics? Can we all see that that is unfair and unreasonable? Just, this is a, like a universally accepted yes sign, just so I know that we're at least, because I can't go forward if we're not on the same page here. None of the rest of this works if we're not. Okay, we have to have the grace to say we can be together here and disagree over here and still be brothers and sisters in Jesus. Okay, so can I go to another one that's a little more controversial, but hopefully safe? Can we agree that the Bible calls all people to love those who are in poverty and who have less than them? Can we agree that that is the clear teaching of Jesus in the Bible? Can we agree that we, there could be different approaches to government policies to do that? Somebody could be really passionate and say, I really think the best way to do this is to create a government system that intervenes using tax dollars to help people in a difficult situation. And somebody else could go, I think that's a really bad system. I don't think it's gonna work. Can both of those people agree that God calls them to love the poor and even have a passion for loving the poor, even while they disagree over here about the best way to do that? Are we okay? Okay, I'm not gonna keep going with examples because I do actually wanna keep my job. And I know at some point I'm gonna say something over here that's gonna get me in big trouble. But I think we have to be able to have this grace. The number of times in these conversations, I have heard people say, because they don't support this policy, I cannot imagine that they love God in this way. I cannot imagine that they possibly agree with the biblical ethic because they don't agree with what I think is the best law. And nowhere in scripture are we called to unite around this. This is not the kingdom of God. Okay, that doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's evil. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be engaged in political activism if that's your passion. It just means this is not our home base. This is our home base over here. To unite around a biblical ethic and then to go advocate for it and follow the spirit in your own conscience and how you want to do that in the best possible way. Now, Pastor Tim Keller, um, if you know his name, he was a pastor in Manhattan for decades and he pastored a very biblically solid, we would say theologically conservative evangelical Presbyterian church in the middle of Manhattan. What an awesome combination does that sound like? Okay. And what he said he observed, he, he actually, there's a really great study somebody did a, a while back on the first century church. And what they found is that there were five distinguishing biblical ethics of the first century church. Five things that made the, the church stand out from everyone else. One was their view on sexuality and marriage. 
Guys, if you think we um, are sexually confused today, we have invented nothing new that the Romans weren't doing, okay? And the early church seemed radical for insisting that the healthy, God-honoring context of marriage is one man and one woman for life. That was unique. The Judeo-Christian faith was unique in that. The second thing was they were remarkably pro-life when it came to unborn and recently born children. Abortion existed in the first century. So did abandoning kids in the streets and letting them die. And the church was adamantly opposed to it. They were rescuing babies everywhere they could. Thirdly, the church was radically committed to creating a community that served the poor. Welcoming people in no matter what their situation and helping them heal and get what they need. Fourth, the church was radically committed to transcending racial and ethnic and national boundaries. They wanted to create one people that were united together around Christ, regardless of your ethnic background. And fifth, they were committed to not retaliating against your enemy. Now, what Keller has observed in his decades of doing ministry, he said, no one does the non-retaliation thing anymore. (laughs) We're all retaliating against our enemies. But what he noticed was when he would go into a very left-leaning city and preach about loving people regardless of race and ethnicity and preach about loving the poor, he would get applause and cheers. And when he would preach about marriage and abortion, people would walk out and leave. But then he said, when I'd go to really conservative parts of the country... If I preached about abortion or marriage, I'd get a standing ovation. And if I started talking about race or economics and the poor, people looked at me like I was crazy and even got very uncomfortable with what I was saying. Now, what what Keller suggests is if we find ourselves doing that, If we find ourselves splitting the ethic that Jesus taught and saying, these belong in the church and these don't. I'm not using this anymore, okay? If you find yourself wanting to amen certain biblical principles, but squirmy if we talk about other ones, there is a good chance that you're being more shaped by the culture than you are the scriptures. And it is the way of politics It is the way of the kingdom of the world to pit certain ethics against others. To say, I'm going to be for this and not for that. And if you'll get on my team and give me my vote, we'll bundle these things together. That's not the ways of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God calls us to be united around these biblical principles while acknowledging the political policies can go different ways. So, As we attempt to walk this together, I believe what Jesus is calling our church to is a level of unity around one picture of walking with Jesus and a lot of grace on how that plays out in political interaction. Let's see how the story ends because I think it's going to have one last application for us. Pilate says in verse 37, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I am. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. (laughs) What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? 
And they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Let me tell you a little bit about Barabbas. Barabbas was a Jewish revolutionary who hated Rome. He felt like Rome was oppressing the people of God in Israel. And so he rallied people to rise up against Rome and fight to take back Israel. And he committed murder in that process. And in this moment, standing before Pilate, the people of Israel have a choice. Pilate's about to have Jesus beat and whipped and bloodied to a pulp. And in the final moment, Pilate is going to offer Israel two kinds of leaders, two kinds of people to commit to. Do you want Barabbas, the courageous political revolutionary that will fight for you? Or do you want this bloody mess over here who wouldn't fight back? Do you want the revolutionary or do you want your Messiah? Do you want a kingdom of the world or do you want the kingdom of God? And when he puts this to the Jewish leadership, they are gonna scream, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone on the right or left of whatever political spectrum you're on <laughs> ends up in these places. But can I just tell you some, some conversations I've had that have broken my heart and could potentially show what choosing Barabbas could look like on both ends of the spectrum? To my friends on the right, uh, there's often a deep, deep passion for our religious liberties. A deep passion that our rights to continue to worship Jesus and follow our ethic would be protected from being taken away from us. And over time, the desire to have that right protected becomes such a deep passion that I don't think it's going too far to say the passion for my freedom to worship Jesus outweighs my passion to actually worship Jesus. And eventually we get to a place where our great shield and defender is no longer Yahweh, but is the First Amendment. And we are trusting more in the defense of a constitution for our freedom than in a savior. I love religious freedom. I love the idea that a government wouldn't interfere in people's ability to follow Jesus. But the good news of the gospel the good news of Jesus rather than Barabbas is Jesus gives you a freedom, a religious freedom that no government could ever take away. No government could ever take away your ability to worship Jesus. It's not possible. Because what Paul said is that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in fear of your freedoms taken, being taken away because the freedom you have in Christ cannot be taken away. And if our tone becomes primarily one, of militantly fighting for our rights, something of the presentation of Jesus has gotten lost. Now to my friends on the left, I see a passion, a passion for the poor, the oppressed and the outcast. A passion rooted in a gospel understanding of how God loves people. But at a certain point, there's a darkness that can come in where a love for the oppressed turns into an anger for the ones we label oppressor. That then the anger 
becomes a contempt. And the contempt becomes a hatred. And pretty soon you have a hard time even coming to church because you're so disgusted at all the other people who aren't as committed to the cause of the oppressed as you are. You, you don't even wanna associate with those other Christians who aren't as committed to the cause of Jesus as you are. And you start to sound an awful lot like the Pharisees of old who are so convinced that they were on the right side of God's plan that they had to distance themselves in anger and contempt from everyone else who wasn't. And I don't wonder if somewhere inside that heart is a little fear of getting lumped in with the evil oppressors and an attempt to justify yourself as different. And to my, my friends on the left, I think you need to discover a savior who was able to be for the oppressed and the oppressor, who went to the cross to save both and make one new people out of them, who didn't cut down violently, but rather took the violence on himself in love. So may we be a people who are united around a crucified savior who showed us a different kind of kingdom. Lord, that's our prayer for our church. I pray that your spirit will be at work in us to transform us and to make us your people. Lord, may we not lose one ounce of passion for anything you've called us to, but as we pursue what you have called us to, may we also pursue that in the way you have called us to live. We love you, Lord, and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, sing together? As members of his kingdom, we sing praises to King Jesus tonight, church. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand built this church on the rock. Glory, glory. Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem. Our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of
sanctify us keep our eyes set on you man I pray blessing and provision over fellowship mosaic body in the midst of a world with so many kingdoms King Jesus you reign you are Lord over all now now and forever right now and forever thank you we love you so much Lord amen hey uh, if you're new like talk to someone next to you and ask how to get involved or go meet with someone at the info booth. Come up on stage and talk to one of us on the worship team. We'd love to chat with you. Um, and also, if you'd, if you'd like to be prayed with, uh, we'll have some prayer team folks on the walls. Um, also, again, someone from the worship team would love to pray with you or someone around probably as well. Go in peace. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next Saturday.
Hey, let us go in peace and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bye.